0: In Acts chapter 21, we're going to pick up with verse 9, and we'll see how far we get today, but we're looking also at some new faces that are actually old faces that have stepped in. Actually, we're going to go to start Acts 21, verse 8. And the next day, we that were of Paul's company departed and came unto Caesarea, and we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. And the same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles." And when we heard these things, both we and they of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then answered Paul, I'm sorry, then Paul answered, "What mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when we would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, the will of the Lord be done." And after those days, we took up our carriage and went up to Jerusalem. There went with us also certain of the disciples of Caesarea and brought with them one Manassan of Cyprus, an old disciple with whom we should lodge. When we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the day following, Paul went in with us unto James and all the elders were present. And when we had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. When they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. And they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. What is it therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. Do therefore this, that we say to thee, we have four men which have a vow on them. Them take and purify thyself with them, and be a charges with them, and they may shave their heads, and all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing, but that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. And so we cut off there at verse 24, and before we go and we get into what's going on here, we ask some questions we're going to see two sects of Jews that appear to Paul. There's ones that were of the, like the Hellenistic, the Greek-speaking Jews. They were the Christians. And they were concerned with some of the scuttlebutt that came back from Asia Minor. And they were accusing Paul of something. Now, they were the good Jews. They were the ones that wanted him to basically go through another purification, confirmation, like a sign, like Paul had done back in Acts 18. And they wanted him to to honor this, to prove to the Jews that he was not going to these churches and abrogating and eradicating the law of Moses. They were really worried about that. Then another sect of Jews comes in, they're the ones that were breathing and hissing and coming after him to kill him. So, so if you know that going into this, it'll be easier to follow. These were not the same Jews that we see after chapter, verse 24 that come after him. They were good Christians that were trying to do the right thing at first, and then another sect of Jews comes in. So basically, we're going back, and I want to look at Philip. I think that's important that we go back and we see how the Lord brings some of these faces... Into basically back into play again and to see how important this is, how basically what happens and how Paul is encouraged. So, going back, Paul remained any fellowship. His ship would have been unlaid of its burdens and taken to unload its cargo when he's on his way to Jerusalem. There he was at Ptolemais, uh, near Syria, Tyre, and Sidon. We talked about that area last week. Paul would remain there seven days and be told not to go back to Jerusalem. And there was such obvious peril that lie ahead that not, not, not only was Paul warned back in the Grecian island off Asia Minor, but no sooner than he reaches the cities on the coast of Syria, northwest of Jerusalem, he's warned there also. Now, here's the question. Uh, it's kind of a two-part two question that we just read. And if you've been following along and reading and studying it all, or if you remember ever, ever having a study in the book of Acts, there were two sets of prophets here that come and they witness to others. They're there for a specific reason, and they warn Paul. Who were the, who were the prophets that we just read? You can see it in verses 9 and 10 and 11. Who were the prophets? Agabus was one, but there was other ones. Yes. Yes the four virgin daughters of Philip. That's very important, because we're going to go off the beaten path, and we're going to answer another question. And I'll ask it in a minute. So these, so Philip, first of all, who was Philip? Anybody remember this Philip? Because there are other Philips in the Bible, but this one is very specific. This Philip, I'll give you a hint, was back in chapter 7. And I, no, no, it's actually the formation... We have, well, let me me just, I like to tie this together. The formation of our church government for the Presbyterian church is predicated on Acts chapter 6, okay? It's the calling of the deacons. When the Greek-speaking widows felt that they were being mistreated and the tables were not being properly serviced, the elders had all they could do, which I know as an elder, an elder has all he can do. An elder does a lot of different things. You know, if you're not preaching at other churches, small churches that are kind of devoid of any type of pastors for the week, last minute, I've done that many times, you know, you've got uh, session meetings, you have presbytery meetings, that are coming up in a few weeks, elders have a lot, so they're saying, you know what, we have the work of the Lord to do, we have to work with prophecy and prophets, and we have lots of work to do out there in all these churches, and we're doing the administration of our Lord Jesus Christ this, this work that's done in the churches is going to need deacons because there are people that need to be personally taken care of that we can't reach out to. So the congregation presents seven deacons. And what's so important about the Presbyterian form of government is everyone is involved in a system of checks and balances that nobody can be declared perfect. How is someone declared perfect when they get to make all the decisions and never have any responsibility or accountability to something else? No one should ever have that kind of power. That is unlimited power. Caesar had that kind of power. You'll see that today in Pentecostal, Baptist, Roman Catholic, and all these different churches. They have polity that completely are unchecked. 100%. They have no accountability to anything. And they can do whatever they want use the money as they see fit, talk to people, tell them, and do whatever they want. Back in Acts chapter 6, this was made very plain that the congregation has an obligation to be part of the voting. We saw in this church that there were four letters that were written. Those letters were written by four very good families that had a problem, and those letters that were written in this church in the session... I was in two session meetings where part of the session said those letters were not allowed to be read. And I fought for those families personally because I went to Presbytery, which the other part of the session did not go to Presbytery. I did, and I found out the Presbytery said those letters are matters of church correspondence. I read them to the presbytery and they said you're not just supposed to read those letters I can give you the names you must read those letters and I was shot down in the session that's not right those letters had to be read by the congregation because they're voting members and there was a problem that we were having to deal with And those letters pronounced the problem and my point is that is how a presbytery works if the congregation cannot have a say in these matters then it's tyranny. It's not a presbytery. And if you're not a member of a Presbyterian church with the proper form of church government, you're not a Presbyterian. That's what it boils down to. And this all ties into what happened back in Acts chapter 6. Philip was one of the seven who was picked by the congregation, presented, and the elders made confirmation that they would be the seven. Basically, like three or four of them were actually called evangelists. One of them, I think the most powerful one out of them all was Stephen. But he was killed right on, wasn't he? Philip was one of those, and he's the only one recognized in the New Testament as an evangelist. The only one. And so the only other time you hear the word evangelism, an evangelist is in 2 Timothy, where Paul tells Timothy, you need to do the work of an evangelist. So we could say that Timothy also had that vocation. So, what's important about this is... Philip starts as a deacon, he's waiting on tables, and deacons can become elders. Deacons can become pastors. They can work through the polity of the church, and with the presbytery they can be trained. If if they're showing that they want to go forward, and they're praying about it, and and they're growing in their faith, they can go forward. That's what happened to Philip. He became an evangelist. In fact, he became an overseer of the churches in this region of Caesarea. Why does Caesarea sound so familiar? What's so familiar about that? That's where a good part of Christ's miracles were. Christ himself had been in Caesarea. I find, that blows me away, that they're all right back there at the very same place where Christ's ministry was. Now Paul is back there, and now he is the one being warned. Christ was crucified, and you're next. Basically is what they're saying. So we see Philip, and and I I think it's important to look at this. Philip the Evangelist, we see, we read about Philip the Evangelist back in chapter 6 and in chapter 8. What was the big event in chapter 8? Does anybody remember what happened to Philip? we see. Go ahead, Lisey. I'm sorry. That's it. You got it. You got it. That's what's behind door number 4. And so basically, Philip, he shows that he has this prodigious knowledge of an Ethiopian disciple. Well, because he was called a eunuch, but I, he's a disciple of Christ. He was trying to learn, basically, what what it was that he was reading in the Old Testament. And I love this. He's literally, I mean, I, I have all these notes written. I don't want to bring them because we'd be here all morning on that. But what happened was that this Ethiopian, he was a ruler actually, and he's in this carriage, and he's, he's, he's going down the road and he starts asking, Philip just happens to be there, what does Isaiah 53 mean? And Philip starts chasing him down, tracks him down, and he stops the horses, gets up there and sits with him and sits there and has a Bible study. That's what he would do. I love that. I think it's fantastic. Go ahead. Yes. That's the same Philip, yep. The Ethiopian, he's reading out loud in the chariot, he's out in the wilderness. Can you imagine the surprise of the driver and this Ethiopian that Philip runs alongside, the chariot, and he says, Understand what thou readest! He's worried about his interpretation or his hermeneutics of the Old Testament. And I love that because Christ had to go back to Nicodemus He on the road to Emmaus, and he had to go to the disciples, and he said, do you remember the Old Testament? And it's amazing how this Ethiopian goes right back to what many call the first gospel of Scripture, which is Isaiah 53, showing the absolute detail of the messianic prophecy of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look how this all comes together. It all fits together. All of this connects, and it, and, it, and it connects so wonderfully if we're just willing to look at it. But what were the verses? Can someone read Isaiah 53, 7 and 8? These are the verses, and this is, we're talking about Philip, and because right now, while you're looking at those verses, Philip is going to invite Paul into his house. And he's going to help, he's going to have Paul lodge with him in the Caesarea area. And this is how this connects. So, so what are those verses? Thank you, Jenny. I mean, look at that. He was taken from prison and from judgment. He was, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. And then it says in verse 9, So he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall profit in his hand. And and then it says, uh, talks about the travail of the soul. Philip expounds sacred scripture. This Ethiopian, he craves to hear it, and he expounds it, and he tells him that these are messianic prophecies. He tells this Ethiopian this is the Messiah. This is who it is. This is the one that will come, and when he does, there will only be a handful that will know. It says in John chapter 1, even his own people received him not. Only a handful of people would know. This is the Philip who raised his daughters in the admonition of the Lord. And these four girls loved the Lord, and they had power. They had real power. So here's the question. Is it... Is it okay because of these four uh, prophetesses for women to be preachers and pastors today? Is it okay for them to be rulers and overseers over the church? You're shaking your heads, no. Jerry, Brother Jim, Lisey, Jenny, you're all right. And there's a lot of reasons why, but I'm going to tell you the controversy. You get into studying this, well, you know what you've heard, you know what you've seen. There's a real big watershed event going on right now. And it's, it's in the major, it's in world news right now. And I'll, I'll tell you about it in a minute. But what were these girls doing? It says that they were virgin. That means they were home. It means their father presided over them while they were still. Did they get married after that? Maybe. At this point, they were doing a vocation. They were young girls. I'm going to tell you right now, it's bad enough today. Can you imagine even... I'll I'll give you a little window before I get into these notes because I think you'll find some of this fascinating. Would you have wanted to be a woman and walk into a Jewish synagogue and start preaching back then? You want to be buried up to your head and stoned to death in the street. And that was just one of many ways that they took care of that. Wonderful Torah. Wonderful Jewish Torah. Isn't it wonderful how they did that to women? That's not only what they did. And I'm being facetious. Philip Philip preaches. There's prophets among these apostles. There's there's disciples. There's advantages. We, I mean, evangelists. We see. Philip was blessed with four daughters. This was a further accomplishment of the prophecy that could be seen. Do we see anywhere in the Old Testament that women could be prophetesses? Well, Lisi. Yes. Could you read Joel chapter two, verses twenty-seven to twenty-nine? Deborah, that's excellent. Well, what do, what what did they do? What is the vocation and the office of these women that were prophetesses? What could, what were they? What would the Lord have them do to honor Him and to be protected? If you're ready, Joel two twenty-seven to twenty-nine. Thank you. Thank you. Upon the handmaids, it says, young men shall see visions. It says, your daughters shall prophesy. You see that? This is a godly thing. It says, and your people will not be ashamed. One of the ways that they could have shamed these women back here in in this new era with this new church is the Pharisees would have got a hold of these women. This would have been a horrible thing. There was a plentiful pouring out of the Spirit upon the flesh of their sons and daughters. They would be able to prophesy, and the gift to foretell things to confirm that the Lord gave them this ability, how He gave it, when it, we see it in Scripture, that they really could prophesy. And so the question is, should women take on the role of the men as overseers of the church? Our Lord, is He, he manifests His greatness through any means. He manifested through Jonah, who is absolutely belligerent towards him. He used the jackass of Balaam to to pronounce words from the Lord himself. He used the staff of Moses to be a sign. And we're going to talk about signs, about this prophecy. He used many means. He used women. He used men. And the Lord many times, I remember Pastor Olson years ago, and he still preaches about this, he did not do wickedness, but he used wicked means in order to pronounce and to show how how he would not share his glory with another. You can see that through Pharaoh. You can see that through some of the wicked kings. We saw that last week, last week with Ahab and Jezebel. There is much conjecture about the discrimination of God towards human beings. And that is a really bad theological accusation towards our Lord today. And one of the big things is women should be preachers, they say. Theologians believe that that's, that, that is true. It's pathetic, and those that could test the mysteries of our Lord must take time to pick up scripture and read so that they would see that the Lord uses every type of walk of life of mankind to carry on his wonderful works. And here we see these virgins, these four virgin daughters of Philip. First Corinthians seven thirty-four says, There is difference also between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman careth for the things of the Lord, for the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she that is married care for the things of the world how she may please her husband. And so we see here that the Lord used these women that they could prophesy if there was a protection that the Lord had given them. We don't see them going into the temple. We don't see these women. It's what we don't see is what the Lord is telling us, the office of these women. We don't see them going into the temple. We don't see them preaching. We don't see them leading congregations. We see them honoring the Lord and doing the job that they were called. That is their office. We, all have, we have to remember this. Even the Trinity has its own offices. There are offices that the, the second person of the Trinity did. The Holy Spirit did not hang on the cross. Christ did. It was God the Father who was in the garden and it was Christ's voice. He's the, he was the oracle or the voice. And the Holy Spirit now is the age we live in. You can see the three offices by the three different ages that we live in since creation. The first age was the audible voice of Jehovah Himself. Then the second part is Jesus Christ as He speaks, and we hear His voice all through the Old Testament, all the way up until He's crucified. Then He says in John chapter 16, It must needs that I go to be on the right hand of the Father that I may bring you the what? The Comforter. The Consolation. The one that walks beside you. Not the one that holds a sword over your head. The one that loves you. And that's the age that we're in. And so the Holy Spirit guides Paul. So right now, what we're seeing here is that these women knew where their offices were. Now remember, our Lord was brutally flogged. He was stripped. He was flogged. He was scourged and crucified. John the Presbyterian some people call him the Baptist, I call him the Presbyterian, had already been beheaded. Peter and John had been beaten. Stephen stoned to, to a brutal death. Paul was beaten and stoned. And now in these verses, we will see how he's beaten again. Paul warns heavily about women taking on this role. And this is why. Can someone look up 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and read verses 33-35? to 35? And 1 Timothy 2, verse 10. Can someone read that one? Thank you, Matthew. 1 Timothy 2, verses 10 through 13. 1 Timothy 2, verses ten, eleven, twelve, 11, 12, and 13. This is a thank you, Jenny. This is a protection. This is a protection that women that women should enjoy because back then, yes, there was it had to be a standard that was given. And Paul gives this standard going back to what the Lord had said about how women being silent only to the the point of basically they're silent to the point of obeying their husbands, listening to their pastors, and being very careful. The reason is there's many reasons. Today the conjecture is that is feminists. And that women are put down, beaten down. And that's not true. Women were lifted up. And there was no greater emancipator of women than Christ himself. Because they were being murdered. They were being tortured. Can you imagine a woman being an overseer in the Jewish synagogue right now and her taken and stripped and beaten in front of everybody? Because that's what would have happened. That's what happened to Paul. When they beat you, they stripped you. And you were back and your your, your back was hanging out completely Spare, uh, be bare so that they could rip the skin and tear it to pieces. And back then, Paul knew he was a Pharisee. He beat women himself. Remember that? On the way to Damascus, he had no problem with that, because that was part of the Torah. If a woman had committed adultery against her husband, according to the I trying to remember the words there, according to the, to the, the Mishnah and the mitzvah, they, could be, they were the ones being beaten, and they were, the man didn't have any responsibility. The man had no problem. Remember when Christ met the woman, that they were about to stone? Remember that? And so here, Paul gives a standard on why that they're to be silent, and he basically he pronounces, if you go back to the prophecy so that they would not be ashamed. That means that they would not be beaten, that, that would, they would not be crucified and treated this way. How horrible it would be to see that happen to a woman. Paul knew this. Look what happened to him. Would you like to see what happened to him happen to, some, to maybe one of the women that were part of, maybe one of these disciples, one of these young girls? He's about to go in and get beaten so bad in a few verses. How he lived through that. They say at the end of his life he had over 175 horrible stripes on his back. How do you survive stoning? What woman could ever survive a stoning? It only by the grace of God Paul survived it. This is a protection. This is not a feminist Movement where it's trying to beat women down and to show that they're supposed to be nothing. That's not the Christian church. Christ loved the women. You wonder how much He loved them? He let them be the first teachers. They're the first ones that saw Him at the tomb. And He uplifted them. But they have an office. We all have our offices. We see here, according to the Mishnah, or the first compilation of the oral law, and the mitzvah creating a bond, the mitzvah creates a bond between God who commands and man who performs, women faced severe, harsh punishments for speaking in public, teaching in the temple, and praying publicly. In the case of the offenses against the seventh commandment, it was a woman that was to be stoned, according to the Torah. John 8 verse 3 says, And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman, taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us, that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground, and though he heard them not, he avenged that woman. He could have easily have cowarded, to them and said, you're right, take her out. No way. He defended that woman. And I believe, I've talked to pastors about this, I've heard messages, and I believe that all he had to do with that stick is write one word at the feet of those elders, and it was the very sin that they were guilty of. Probably adultery was one of them. And they were so embarrassed, they walked away. And once again, Christ dusted off the very spot they were standing in, and he's left by himself. And he goes, woman, go and send not. Get yourself cleansed. I am defending you to stay. What about the woman at the well? Remember that? She was an anomaly. She had to go at noon, high noon, in the heat of the day to get her water because she is an adulteress. He, does, he goes there with her. He doesn't go at six in the morning with all the other women. Here's the big event that's happening right now. Has anybody heard about Rick Warren's church? Have you heard about the big thing going on now? Oh, it's bad. Southern Baptist Church... At least they're doing that. I got a lot of problems with them, but at least, yeah. The Southern Baptist Church is dropping Rick Warren. Rick Warren retired. Oh, he had such a tough job to retire from, getting paid tens of millions dollars of writing books. He had such a tough job that he has to retire? Are you kidding me? What did, he, what did he have to do, go up and stand and give an intervention for 20 minutes when they had nothing but a bunch of... Music for about two hours, and he collects millions and millions of dollars, and he had to retire. So what does he do when he retires? He ordains three women to be pastors of his Saddleback Church. And he completely infuriated the Southern Baptist Convention, and at least they had the guts to stand up and to excommunicate him. That's big news right now. Saddleback Church, the megachurch, mega megachurch, megachurch. I don't see that word anywhere in the Bible when it comes to church. Long led by Rick Warren, has been ousted from the Southern Baptist Convention for naming a woman to its pastoral team against the SBC teaching. The Southern Baptist Convention's executive committee decided on Tuesday, this is February 21st, by the way, this didn't happen 10 years ago, to approve the recommendations from the Denomination's Credentials Committee that the Lake Forest, California Church be deemed not in friendly cooperation with the convention on the basis that the church has a faith and a practice that does not closely identify with the convention's adopted statement of faith as demonstrated by the church having a female teaching pastor functioning in the office of pastor. So he ordains three of them. You know, he's part of a convention and he's supposed to adhere to their laws. He goes and ordains them before he even approaches the convention. That, that's, he's a tyrant, Jenny. yes good point that, that's a great point yeah it's it's really clouded division hasn't it and so and so here we see he does this he's a tyrant he doesn't answer to anybody that's what the problem is and so he goes and he ordains is oh, i'm retiring i can do whatever i want so what does he do Lisi. right That's right. They the Lord was going to bless them, no. But no. you... these that in place, uh, Meyer, yeah, them, That's right. No fact, they're, they're the 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 that that's exactly right. That's a great point, Jenny. Also heard that church, there are women that I Coming through. Coming up. Well, they're defying the Torah. I didn't hear that. That's interesting. And it's a wonder... Right. The Hebrew root movement. That's that's a new one. One of the reasons why we're not part of the PCA, it's one of many reasons, and the PCA was actually a very good synod for a while back in the day, and then J. Gresham Machen got pushed out of it. Right now, if you have a if you have like a Presbytery or some kind of a Presbyterian council, you're liable to have women preaching because they do ordain women and have them preaching. I don't say that at all to disrespect women. I think women are the strongest, they've been the strongest backbone foundational principle of the church for many years. And and, they, and, they have the, and I, love having, I love having correspondence with the women in this church on Wednesday night prayer meeting, on the Sunday morning worship. I think that's great. And not the worship, but the Sunday school class. I think that's great. But the Sunday morning worship, we're all to be quiet. We can see there's different times for different offices. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I can tell you this: I've done my research and I know what I'm talking about. This stuff here is dangerous. With this guy Rick Warren's doing, it's very dangerous. Matthew, that's right. There's a time, and you know what? I could we could we could actually stretch that a little bit, you know, give it a look, give it some uh, updated commentary. As there's an office for everything too. There's a place for everybody. Not everybody can be a pastor. Not everybody can be an elder. Not everybody can do this and that. There's a place for everything. And see, these women are godly, and they're so godly, so the question is, is if they're women and if they're prophets, and they're not preaching in the synagogues, and they're not preaching in the Christian church, what were they doing? How were they instituting their their office of a prophet? Lisey. hmm And I fell in the speech of worshiping. And he said unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and I thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Amen. All they had to do was testify of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give the gospel. Exactly. And they were prophecies. Perfect that's perfectly said. They gave the gospel, they were giving prophecy. But look at this. Here, all of a sudden, now I'm going to lump in the next part real quick because we're once again running out of time, and I wanted to get into these two sects of the Jews. That'll have to be next week. But Agabus, Agabus comes in. So we got right now the two types of prophets. We have the four virgins of Philip. These are prophetesses, and I'm not going to leave, and I'm not going to forget about what they were doing as women. That's important to look at that. But we don't, I don't even have to explain it to you. You can see what's going on by what we just read. You have four virgin daughters of Philip, who are prophetesses, and you have Agabus. Here's what's fascinating about Agabus. Agabus is in Jerusalem and in Caesarea, and we'll, we'll see him if I run out of time. We're not going to miss this, because I, 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 I love to go back and look at the history. Agabus' name is Greek. What is a Greek doing in Jerusalem? Being a prophet. He's a Greek. Well, maybe he was a Hellenistic Jew. That's a good possibility that he was a Greek-speaking Jew. But he has obviously, from history, been given the office of being a prophet. And it says here, look at the verse that we just read. It says, "...and as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus." Then go to verse 12 in Acts 21, where we this is our our text this morning. Acts 20, verse 12, after Agabus enters into the picture, look at the words here. And when we heard these things, both we and they of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. Both sets of prophets are there to give prophecy to the apostle of Jesus Christ think about that this is the most important part of the lesson this morning both of both parts both divisions of these prophets are there giving counsel to Paul the apostle Paul the apostle he's the one that's setting up the churches he's the one looking at them he's the one facing death and they are the ones giving him counsel so Paul goes in he goes into the house of Philip There's the four virgin daughters of Philip who are prophetesses. Agabus comes in. He probably is the one there who's going to be the overseer. He's the one that can have a meeting, some kind of a service. He leads it and they all sit down with the four women and Philip and they sit there with Agabus and tell tell Paul what exactly is going to happen. Their job is to stay in the house and they give counsel to the pastor's. They give counsel to the apostles. The apostles would come to their house, pray with them, and they would say, the Lord laid on our hearts to tell you, this is what's going to happen. They were part of the prophecy that Paul was going to go to Jerusalem and be detained. They were telling him exactly what was going to happen. They had the power to do that. But these women are not out overseeing the churches like Agabus would be and some of the other ones. They stay there and they're protected, but they're still doing the work of the Lord and they're doing a great job and the Lord blesses them immensely. I I think that's incredible. Here Agabus, here he is another prophet. He's regarded as one who quite possibly, if you read, if you go back to Luke chapter 10 verse 1, was quite possibly Agabus was one of those 70 disciples that the Lord had called and given the power of prophecy. Because it was in that area at the time. There were 70 disciples that he had called. Then, where did we see him not long ago? We saw Agabus give another prophecy. Can someone look up Acts chapter 11 and read verses 27 to 29? Here we see Agabus once again. Before now, way before now. acts eleven twenty seven to twenty nine Um. Yeah, that's it. Okay, I'm reading something else, but you're right. Thank you, Matt. Agabus was there when Paul was getting started in his ministry. Remember, Agabus came all the way from this area and went to Antioch to meet Agabus. Agabus went to meet Paul, who at the time was still Saul. So if you see his name is still Saul, you know that he's still early on in his ministry. At that point, who's the one that presented Saul the very one that Paul's having a problem with right now, Barnabas. Barnabas presented Saul, Saul becomes his apostle, Agabus is in the middle of all of this. And he is with Saul, he's with Peter, he's with some big names. And then all of a sudden we see Agabus pop up back here in Acts chapter 21, where here Paul is getting ready to go to Jerusalem, he's now at the house of Philip, there are the four daughters of Philip, and then there's Agabus and every single one of them are giving him a warning, whatever you do, don't go to Jerusalem. So Paul gets up his girdle and his belt, he heads back to Asia Minor. He stays there and he hides for the next couple of years. Right? That's not what he said. Seeing if you're listening. 1 Corinthians 12:8 says for to one is given by the spirit the word of wisdom. To another, the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, the gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, diverse kinds of tongues. To another, interpretation of tongues. And we see here, and you can go, into, you can go and read Peter, how Peter says if you have these gifts, if you have the power of, of preaching, you preach. If you t- for teaching, you teach. If you prophesy, you, you be, you, you, if you're a prophet, you prophesy. And he says you, you instigate these offices and these vocations that the Lord gives you. And what they do is they go to Paul and they say with a sign, and I think that this is incredible, Agabus says, whether I tell you to go or not, you're going. See, I believe the girls in Philip said don't go. I believe Agabus says, well... You're going to go, and this is what's going to happen, and you're not going to like it. Old Testament prophets sometimes attached physical signs to their God-given prophecies. This man owneth this girdle. It was an unusual thing among the prophets to represent those things. It was, it was, not un, it was, it was a usual thing. It was not unusual for the prophets to use signs in order to declare their Prophecies. Remember when Moses threw down his rod in front of Pharaoh, it becomes a serpent. He tucks his hand in his cloak to bear leprosy. At the commandment of the Spirit, remember Isaiah was commanded to go barefoot. Isaiah 20 verse 2 says, And this was part of the sign of his prophecy. At the same time spake the Lord by Isaiah the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from off thy loins and put off thy shoe from thy foot. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. This was a sign. Remember, Jeremiah was putting a yoke upon his neck in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 27, verse 2. Thus saith the Lord to me, Make thee bonds and yokes and put them upon thy neck. This was a sign, this was significant of his prophecy. Ezekiel chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. Remember Ezekiel, dig thou through the wall in their sight and carry out thereby 12 and verse 6. In their sight shalt thou bear it upon thy shoulders and carry it forth in the twilight. Thou shalt cover thy face, and thou shalt, and that, that thou see not the ground, for I have set thee for a sign unto the house of Israel. And so when Agabus comes along, we see here, Agabus takes Paul's girdle, and what does he do? He ties his hands and his feet. And that's significant, that this is exactly what's going to happen to Paul. He's going to be bound, and he's going to be taken in. You know what this reminds me of? Look at the courage of Paul. You know, we could sit and talk about that for a long time. Look at the courage. You ever been constrained? Something? You ever been moved to, to, to do something that you really didn't want to do, but you know it's the right thing to do? I remember having to be a witness for the state of Pennsylvania, for a guy that was stealing stuff. He had stolen over a hundred items. And he got me back in 2000, and they called me and wanted me to be a, a witness and go over, and I didn't want to do that more than I more than I wanted to, do, you know, be one of these polar bear people jumping in the ocean when it's freezing cold. And I had to go up there for a week. I didn't want to do it, but I was constrained in my heart to do the right thing because a lot of people had been ripped off, and that was tough. And I didn't know what I was getting into. But I was there for several days. And but have you ever been constrained to do something? Paul says his reply is incredible here. We we got to stop here in a minute. But uh, his reply here, I want to read that. And they told him that he shouldn't go. And we see, then Paul answered, verse 13, Acts 21, 13, What mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? You'd think that his heart would be broken knowing he's about to get beat to death almost. He says, for I am, I am, I am ready to be bound. He says, for I am not... I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had come a long way since he was on his way to Damascus, hadn't he? He was there to persecute the church of Jesus Christ, and now he's there to die for it. And they told him not to go, and his response is, we'll pick up next week, his response is, and we read earlier on in Acts 21, he says, I was bound in the Spirit that I must go. I must go and I must take take on this mantle. And I just there was a verse that I wanted to read. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. That's great. And then also Isaiah 50 verse 7. For the Lord God will help me; therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. And then we see in Luke nine fifty one, and it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And that's speaking about our Savior. As he's going, he's going to die. Paul, it's the same location, same heartless people that hated him. He's getting ready to be detained. And that's what we'll be looking at next week. So let's, uh, Matthew, could you close us with prayer this morning? Thank you.